I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. For private equity, last year was a rocket ship. Five years of record-level fundraising left the industry flush with capital. So-called dry powder, uncommitted funds sitting ready to invest, hit a record high of $1.7 trillion, and for good reason. Even if PE firms found something to buy, chances are it was pricey. Buyout purchase price multiples rose to new highs. Meanwhile, with nearly 8,000 PE firms registered globally, the challenges to stand out continue to grow. So what's next for private equity? How should GPs think about fundraising, investments, exits, and more? What role will technology play? How can GPs be sure they're not investing in the next industry to be disrupted? And what about LPs? What questions should they be asking as they look for new and better places to seek returns? To find out, I spoke with Tim O'Connor, partner in the private equity group at Bain & Company, and we spoke about his firm's extraordinary Global Private Equity Report 2018. Before my conversation with Tim, though, one last item, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Tim O'Connor. Tim, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Oh, look forward to talking to you today. So I've read the Global Private Equity Report from Bain, and clearly uh, 2017 was crazy in the extreme for you and really the whole industry. Um, thank goodness we're now 2018 and everything is calm. And can, can I assume that you've been able to vacation straight through since January? Nothing to do this year? I think it's been even busier than last year, as my five kids can attest. <laughs> I'm sure, how is that? Yeah, I'm sure they can. Um, how is that possible? Well, I, I think um, there's a, a confluence of reasons why that's the case. You know, I think there is a huge capital overhang in terms of money that's been raised by funds that's still looking for a home to put to work. You've got a continued good economy. You've got a um, nice set of financing sources ready and available to um, lend money to companies. And so that's meant purchase prices are high and so that means there's a steady stream of assets coming for sale um, because they can earn good returns on those assets. And how does that tension or that pressure play out? Uh, money looking for homes, uh, good economic business environment, um, homes then looking for money because of the factors that you just described, but then prices being high. Um, how how are you sensing um, the evaluation around valuations? I think the supply-demand imbalance means that prices are at an all-time high. You know, um, end of last year, the average company was selling for 11.2 times, and that was the market clearing price. Uh, we work with 78% of equity capital globally and have um, – co-invested alongside our best clients and so have understood market clearing prices and the average market clearing IRR has gone from the mid-20s to about 18 percent so you know returns have been competed down Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people 
uh, look at private equity um, as an asset class, but I think it needs to be looked at in the lens of just you know broader mergers and acquisitions. And, How do you mean you know, private? Yeah. E- well, yeah, uh-huh. I, I think private equity um, deal count is about you know 10% or so of total acquisitions that occur in a given year, and corporates making up the vast majority. And so you're competing against uh, public companies where the average revenue guidance for the average company is 2x its serve market, and bottom line target is 3x its serve market. The average company only grows at GDP, but might have street guidance to grow at two times GDP or 5%. And so how do they make up uh, the difference? You know, they have a public currency to help them make acquisitions. And so that's the you know, 90% of the deals that are done are done by corporates and private equity funds are competing for the other 10% or so. And, um, you know, given that um, and the supply demand imbalance, what you've seen is that purchase prices have gone up from, you know, eight, nine times five years ago to an average of 11.2 times end of last year. When you talk about that 10%, when you say private equity firms are competing for that that last 10%, are is it that private equity funds, sorry, are are competing against each other and only for that slice, that 10% nub, let's call it, and or are private equity funds competing with the corporates for some portion of that 90%? Or is that simply a function of the size of the private equity fund when you get the really massive funds uh, um, that can you know, play with the corporates? Then sure, they might compete for that 90%. But you know, in, in large part, it's private equity fund versus private equity fund for that last 10%. How, how do you kind of divide all of that out? Yeah, so I, the, the 10% is the, the final outcome in terms of what they're successful at winning. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, many of the larger deals, um, there might be corporate interest in. Um, you know, some of the small niche industry deals that a mid-market private equity fund might not, you know, have the same corporate interest. Um, but we have seen in a number of different sectors uh, corporates dipping down even in terms of deal size themselves. Mm. You know, if I'm a consumer products company and I'm, you know, I have a bunch of legacy brands that are struggling to grow, um, you know, we have seen them dipping down in terms of uh, a lot of these, um, you know, healthy on-target brands that are growing and growing nicely and in getting them in their nascent stage, you know, sooner than they used to. You know, similarly, a number of tech companies are um, stretching down in terms of deal size and finding, you know, sort of emerging companies with interesting technologies that, you know, are pretty small as well. So you can't um, split it entirely by deal size in terms of who the competitive set is going to be. But, you know, at the end of a given year, um, you know, there might be some assets that only private equity funds are competing for. There might be other assets that uh, have a mix of corporate and private equity interest. But the net results, you know, 8, 10, 12 percent in a given year that the private equity funds will win. And I want to 
ask you in a in a bit about one of the points you were just kind of hinting at that uh, technology sector and the knowledge and and expertise around technology that uh, in the report you you write about private equity funds um, you know really building that into their capabilities but on this on this competition point or or PE firms and corporate buyers um, in the report one of the things that uh, you advise is that. PE firms need to beat corporate buyers, quote, at their own game. How can they do that? So one of the reasons that corporate buyers are hard to sort of compete against is oftentimes uh, they have synergies that they're able to bring to a given deal because they have a platform company, they have an existing company, that, and, and they might have shared costs, shared customers, um, that they're able to leverage and pay more than somebody who's buying this as a platform investment. And what we've seen in the private equity industry is uh, they, the private equity as an industry um, is following that same strategy. And that, you know, if you look at 10 years ago, um, you know, add-on deal count um, in terms of uh, total deals was only about a quarter of the deals in the private equity industry. You know, in 2017, it was 50% of all deals that were done that were add-on to a platform. Mm. And the reason that industries had to do that is with industry pricing so high, one of the best ways to average down your multiple is to buy a small tuck-in company yep. that's going to trade at a much smaller multiple. Yep. There might be as much as five to eight times um, multiple difference in terms of what you pay for a platform versus what you might pay for an add-on. And then you might also have synergies that cause that on a pro forma basis to be even less. So uh, very much a sort of tried and true consolidation play that many of the corporates are playing. Um, industry by industry subsector, private equity funds are employing the same strategy. Let's talk for a moment about uh, debt. Um, on the one hand, you've talked about the excess capital. On the other hand, you talk about the uh, amount of financing available. Um, in the report, uh, you wrote that significant supplies of inexpensive debt um, have led to higher leverage, and in fact, debt multiples in uh, the third quarter of last year of uh, 2017 started to approach 2007 levels. Um, what are you seeing around debt multiples so far this year, and what's your concern level or lack of concern level? Yeah, I think debt levels remain um, elevated this year, and at very similar levels to last year, if not even a touch higher. Um, and I think the industry has proven um, quite adaptable at sort of working through the wave of refinancings. There was a big cliff that the industry faced from those 2006-2007 deals that, you know, not unscathed, but did make it through it much better than others. I think the industry has proven to be pretty adept at, at cost-cutting. Um, there are certain sectors, though, that um, you know, there's going to be some disruption. And I think the debt levels will not be a problem for the industry writ large. 
a lot of the debt is covenant light. A lot of the debt is, at, to your point, uh, low levels of interest. Um, but um, there are some industries that are undergoing dislocation where that debt burden will prove to be a problem. You mind revealing which uh, industries, which sectors you have your eye on in terms of the disruption? Well, I, I, th- I think they're pretty obvious, right? So I, I think, um, you know, just um, retail, especially, there, there's going to be and continues to be a, a rapid uh, growth in terms of uh, folks that are buying things over the internet, especially with Amazon. And if you look at the share of wallet progression of Amazon Prime customers over time, uh, it's pretty astounding. And so uh, it's not only consumer uh, subsectors, but I think there's also a number of distribution businesses where Amazon business is going after. It's pretty hard to compete, you know, if you're a private equity fund against a competitor that's valued based on revenue growth and views your profit margins as their opportunity. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, not, not to mention a, a company that can raise the price of Prime by $20. And, uh, you know, I, I don't imagine they're going to lose many, many subscribers even based off of that. Just, uh, you know, they, they, they've got a machine going, no doubt. On the tactical side, um, and you mentioned it uh, briefly earlier, I want to go a little deeper with you. One area that you highlight in the report is technology, and you note that GPs are exploring how the pace of technological change is altering industry profit pools with an eye toward taking advantage of new opportunities before others see them and avoiding pitfalls prior to investment. That's uh, quoted from the report. Are GPs good at that? When you look around, are they staffed in ways to really evaluate future tech impacts on specific companies or sectors? I, I think it's mixed, right? And I think we're of the belief that it's hard, you know, to, to talk about uh, the digital ecosystem. There's so many different capabilities that um, one would like to have. That it's it's hard to insource those, and so when you when you talk about are are they staffed appropriately, you know, our our view is that the best firms don't necessarily look to sort of insource a digital expert, but they build you know a digital ecosystem of folks um, that they uh, work with repeatedly so that they're able to bring the best of breed to any situation whether that's networks of IT providers or advanced analytic vendors or other digital partners. Um, and it, there will be uh, maybe uh, a, a coordinating expert within the firm that will, you know, be the person that helps to build these relationships and understand what are the best of breed advisors that they can bring to a given situation. Um, but there's so many different elements, um, you know, especially because most firms are, you know, making investments in, in a vast array of industries. And so the one expert that might be uh, good to sort of understand what are the pricing opportunities in a chemicals distribution business might not be the same uh, for um, a firm that's trying to develop an omni-channel strategy for a pet retailer. Yeah. And 
perhaps from an LP point of view, is this an area that LPs are asking about? Are they asking sufficiently about it? Would you, do you maybe expect that this could be an area of additional due diligence as LPs um, think about where to uh, where to invest? I, I think um, understanding which industries are likely uh, to be disrupted by digital and which funds are taking the you know advantage of those opportunities uh, is a perfectly appropriate queer line of query for an LP when evaluating a given fund. Um, you know, I think that uh, there are, you know, I think his, one could learn from history here, and there are sector-specific funds that were doing well, uh, and then the Internet came and disrupted a bunch of business models, and a lot of the traditional uh, media subsectors that relied on choke points in terms of distribution, which allowed for very large profit pools, had you know that choke point in terms of distribution to content went away. Um, audiences microfragmented, and those investments went poorly. So I think it's you know, perfectly appropriate for LPs to think about um, different funds and what the, the sort of risk of digital dislocation is um, in the different funds they're investing in. Let's talk about exits. Uh, the report called 2017 a seller's market. Uh, you've already kind of discussed how this year, I guess like last year, because of the prices, uh, companies are seeing the opportunity to come to market for, sell, uh, for sales. Um, does it remain a seller's market? Is that trend holding strong, increasing, decreasing uh, over last year? I think, if anything, it's slightly increasing. Because last of, year... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, last year was great, but um, the economy remains good. Um, there's another year of growth in earnings that the companies have had largely since last year. Uh, the debt financing markets um, still remain good. Uh, the capital overhang for buyouts is now over $600 billion. And the supply-demand imbalance means that um, you still have a very attractive market for exits. And let's talk then just quickly about um, the guidance for LPs. You, there's a list of, uh, um, you know, very kind of uh, engaging terms that you use, looking over the hedge, uh, walking among the zombies, um, uh, picking up the pieces. What, in, in a general sense, um, what, what what guidance are you giving uh, GPs, or would you be giving uh, GPs? Maybe talk to me about uh, looking over the hedge or um, walking walking among the zombies. What what are you kind of telling GPs they they you know might want to be thinking about, suggesting to GPs they might want to be thinking about? Yeah, I, I think the the specific portion of the report that you're referencing uh, just talks about deal sourcing, and so uh, looking over the hedge, uh, what we have increasingly seen amongst our private equity clients is uh, the hedges, think of it as the neighbor's back backyard. And you, we see a lot of sponsor-to-sponsor transactions where uh, you're looking into um, 
another sponsor's portfolio at assets that they've held for three plus years as assets that are likely to come to market and getting smart on those assets in advance. And depending upon the deal intermediary I talk to, you know, as many as a six to a third of all processes get preempted as um, you see different funds doing a lot of work in advance of a process so that they're able to put forth a fully informed, um, fully valued bid um, at with sort of no outs possible that causes, you know, a other sponsor to uh, part with the asset at a, at a very attractive price. In terms of uh, walking among the zombies, yes, it's, um, that's a show. You know, on, that's I, a show on A and E, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, it seems like there's lots of shows like that these days for some reason. But um, you know, we've identified you know 19 zombie funds that um, you know zombies being notoriously hard to kill. Private equity funds are notoriously hard to kill. And we have, there's a number of funds out there that are not going to re-raise, but they actually still do have some portfolio assets. Mm. And you know, approaching them about specific uh, companies that they that you might um, uh, be able to buy, um, and then I think picking up the pieces, um, you know, there um, one of the single uh, highest returning sources of private equity deals have been corporate carve-outs. Hmm. And there they have you know, higher IRR than many of the other sources that we've looked at as we've done our analysis of you know, returns by deal source. And it's not surprising, right? So in any given corporate, um, they're deprioritized for investment resources. They're deprioritized for management resources. If you as a private equity fund buy them and you're able to provide them all the love that they did not get as a corporate and provide them all the investment resources to you know, uh, go after uh, the opportunity set that they have available to them that might not have been as good as um, – you know, the one available to their corporate division that might have been in a slightly higher growth market, and you're able to upgrade their management talent um, by bringing in somebody who's going to be motivated um, with a private equity package. We've seen that be an incredibly effective um, source of, of deals for private equity funds that have earned above-average returns. And public-to-private activity, also related on the corporate side, um, is that something that you're still seeing uh, a lot of interest in? Yeah, so I, I think um, you know we you know public-to-private uh, conversions are on the upswing. Um, you know, public companies tend to be bigger companies, and taking them private uh, presents an opportunity for, especially the mega funds. Um, and so uh, we have seen the total value of these buyouts uh, surge to about $180 billion in 2017. It was about twice the level of the year before. 
um, those tend to be lumpy and they tend to be tied with uh, large specific deals. Um, so if you actually look at and take out the big public to privates um, in a given year, um, the, the remainder of the deal value is, is pretty constant within a range absent the financing markets going off the rails in a given year. The report states that fundraising over the past five years has been historically strong and 2017 was the best year on record for buyout funds. How long can that continue? I think it's going to continue as long as returns remain attractive. And I am a believer in the asset class. And if you actually look at buyout fund performance relative public markets and all major reason, regions, over the long term, you know, buyout funds have outperformed, and this is even more so for top-performing buyout funds. And you know, the private equity industry is not a random walk down Wall Street. Uh, we work with uh, funds that repeatedly outperform their peers, and they have uh, developed strategies over time and capabilities over time that allow them to earn reliably above average returns. As we talk to LPs, you know, LPs remain committed to the asset class in our increasing target allocations. And part of this is just simply in a low interest rate environment, uh, they need to generate returns uh, to satisfy um, either their pension holders or uh, the endowment that they're uh, serving and LPs have been cash flow positive on their private equity investments for seven years running and have returned $2 for every one that they've had to put into the industry. And so that's just been a great fundraising environment for the private equity industry. You know, 85% of buyouts last year exceeded their fundraising targets. Hmm. More than two-thirds of them, uh, you know, raised uh, their fund in less than a year. Wow. And so just it made for it just a great environment, and but that was based on historic great performance. And that opportunity is there not just for the mega funds, but there's still plenty of room for smaller players as well? Yes, and, and we've seen an increasing number of first-time funds, um, first-time funds actually raising, you know, a billion dollars. Yes, they have a track record at their prior fund in order to do so, Um but it, it's, I think if you actually talk to LPs, I mean, it, uh, as we talk to LPs, what we find is that, um, you know, they are most interested in the middle market because they view the returns there as potentially even better than with the mega funds. Tim, thank you for your time and, and for your insights on uh, the report and on the sector. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed the conversation. 